0: Hello, welcome to Teaching American History Saturday webinar, a webinar and podcast series that explores controversies of American history. Today
1: we are joined by our host, Jason Stevens of Ashland University, panelists Jennifer Keene of Chapman University, and Vincent Canato of the University of Massachusetts at Boston. For this month's controversy, we've chosen to focus on the Roaring Twenties. Did the rampant commercialism and modernization of the American economy during that decade actually cause the Great Depression?
2: Well, hello, everyone, my name is Jason Stevens. I'm visiting assistant professor of political science and history uh, at Ashland University in Ashland, Ohio. And welcome to our January episode of this year's Saturday webinar series, uh, which we call American Controversies. By bringing together thoughtful scholars with differing points of view, we hope to have a a discussion, a conversation uh, about historically important issues that still resonate in the current classroom. We encourage all of you to uh, all of you joining us today to participate in that conversation uh, by submitting questions via the Q and A box. Uh, and if you don't mind, don't use the chat box; use the Q and A box, and uh, we'll try to get to as many of those questions as possible uh, throughout our uh, conversation this morning. And within the next week or so, you'll receive an email with links for further reading, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. In the registration form, we have linked to the speeches, the letters, uh, and the other writings that we're using for today's conversation, primary documents. Many of them are also available at the Teaching American History's extensive document database located at tah.org or in our core document collection. Today, we will be discussing this question. Did the Roaring Twenties Cause the Great Depression? Uh, Joining me on our panel, uh, we have a couple of distinguished guests with us today. Uh, First, we have Jennifer Keene. She is Professor of History and Dean at Chapman University. Jennifer, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. And also joining us uh, is Vincent Canato. Vincent is Associate Professor of History at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Uh, Vincent great to see you today.
1: Thanks for having me Jason.
2: And uh, both of them are um, distinguished professors in our Masters of American History and Government program here at Ashland University. They teach uh, in our uh, our teacher programs uh, through uh, Teaching American History. Uh, The students love them. They are they are experts in their field uh, and They're just great, kind and decent human beings, and it's always a, a great opportunity <laughs> to get together uh, and talk about some historically uh, important topics. All right, well, let's go ahead. We're not going to worry about you know, dipping our toes in the water. We're going to just jump right in, and I see we already have uh, some, some questions coming in to us right now, but I want to get started just to get the ball rolling here uh, with an opening question, uh, or maybe two questions. Our guiding question this morning is, did the Roaring Twenties cause the Great Depression? So, uh, Jennifer, Vincent, please help us understand, uh, first, what exactly the question is asking? What is it that we're going to be talking about today? But more importantly, second, why is this a significant question? Why is this an important question, not just for teachers and students to think about, but really for all Americans?
1: Okay. Go ahead, Jen- Jennifer, you want to start? Or-
0: all right, I'll, I'll jump into that one. Um, well, my view of the question and sort of the framing of it is that <clears throat> we're we're really trying to think about a kind of comprehensive um, explanation for why the Great Depression occurred, and we want to move away from just the stock market crashed, you know, that we are in for a 10-year depression, that we want to be thinking about systemic problems in the American economy, we want to be thinking about how those, um, how the Great Depression in some ways sort of unmasks a lot of weaknesses in the American economy or social inequities or, you know, um, questions that Americans, you know, at all ask in the 1930s. But I think we see from the documents that we have today, we're asking in the 1920s things about, um, you know, how do we continue to be prosperous? How do we invest in the, uh, in the country so that we can continue to innovate? Um, Will reforms weaken us, um, our competitiveness? Um, What do common workers expect from this prosperity? Um, You know, all of these questions that are are being asked through these, these documents in the 1920s, then of course, what is the role of the, of the government in all of this? And then in the 1930s, those become the dominant questions that everybody has to, has to sort of laser focus on, but they were present before as well. So people and you know saw that. And then of course not we didn't really have too much in here about the weakness of the farm economy, but as a World War One historian, and if any of my students are on, you know, my special skill to insert World War One into every conversation you have about American history. <laughs> um, you know, that farmer's depression starts much earlier. So I think that and in a way, that's really what we're trying to get at, a kind of a more comprehensive explanation for why the Great Depression happens.
1: Yeah, it, I mean, to me, it also gets to one of the trickiest tools in the historian toolbox, which is causality. You know, did how do you show that X caused Y? And it's one of the hardest things, I think, that we can do, um, And it's also one of the easiest things to go for. Uh, Jennifer mentioned, you know, I think generations and probably even today, students still say, oh, the stock market caused the Great Depression, right? It's an easy explanation. You know, uh, stock market crashes, you get a depression. Um, But causality is really tricky. And, um, you know, there are so many issues that we have in American history that get at that issue of, you know, what caused the Civil War? Um, I mean, closer to what I do. You you're know, like issues of crime, for instance, in the 20th century. You know, why does crime go up in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, and why does crime go down in the 90s? And these are really difficult questions, and there are multiple factors. That's another thing I think that we can kind of—it's um, useful to teach students uh, in the public, right—that that there's rarely one answer to the question of causality. It's rarely one thing that's go, that goes on. We're talking about complex societies we're talking about complex economies and teasing out what factors are involved is um, really really tricky and I think that's so I think today we'll probably get at some of that Uh, but I also think it's good to keep in mind that uh, we want to sort of always be careful when we talk about causes and causality and what you know what causes this I had a we had a grad student a couple of weeks ago who was doing a thesis project. I'm not the advisor, but someone else was. And we were discussing the thesis and she had found some videos. Uh, they were training videos, I think, for the military. And her argument was that these training videos led to rises of sexual harassment and assault or something like that. And my colleagues were all saying, no, no, you can't make that argument. Or, that causality is not, there's, it's a, impossible to prove. So maybe we can't prove. Uh, you know what caused the Great Depression, but we'll hopefully in the next hour we'll talk about some of the arguments that people have made about what caused the depression and maybe some of the factors that we could agree on that led to it.
2: That's really really good. So what we're trying to do today is, is right as as Vincent said, not try to prove what caused the Great Depression, but as Jennifer said, trying to move beyond sort of this take on the the popular take. Well, the stock market crashes. You have a Great Depression. Nobody really knows what caused it, per se, or even why it ended. We can all just agree that it was really, really bad the end. We're trying to move beyond that kind of more surface-level narrative to to talk about this thing in a serious way. So um, take us back. Take us back to this period that we've called the Roaring Twenties uh, for a moment. Uh, This was known as a period in American history that was marked by unprecedented prosperity and peace. Why was that? What was life like for the the ordinary American during that time, during the era of the so-called Roaring 20s?
1: You want me to go first again. Sure. Yeah. yeah, we'll alternate. Sure. You well, see, I
2: told you these. I told you these. These folks are polite, right? They're just right. Kind
1: right, yeah. decent
0: people. It's
1: still, it's still young. The day. The morning. So
0: we'll we'll be parsing. We'll be parsing all day. Um, <laughs> so I guess I'm gonna answer by um, saying, well, who's the ordinary American, right? Um, right away, we have to. Recognize that um, you know there's tremendous diversity in terms of how people exp- are experiencing daily life based on class, race, gender, ethnicity. So, are you are you a farmer? Are you an industrial worker? I mean, there's a lot of a lot of um, different experiences here. I think that what we really see in the 1920s, and this of course becomes one of the most pressing economic problems that. Um, you know, even Hoover in 1928 is recognizing, is dragging down the American economy, um, and that is the, the the farm economy. And the, you know, the farm economy, which has basically been in crisis since 1919. And so you come back from this is the First World War, there's a big, there's a recession in 1919, and a lot of labor unrest. Um, we bounce back in the early 1920s, but But the farm economy never, never bounces back The farmers have gone heavily into debt, in part because of policies that Hoover himself instigated as food administrator during the First World War. And they're they're never really recovering. And um, when you have, you know, half your economy sort of dragging you down, it can the rest of the economy actually balance that out. Now, you see in the the um, document we have on Henry Ford that the car industry is sort of artificially creating this sense of of you know shared prosperity because it's it's generating not just jobs in you know to manufacture cars, but it's menu, it's it's the you know to to have cars you're you're sort of then supplementing um, demand for all sorts of other services. But by the end of the 1920s, you've kind of expired a little bit how many people can you know don't have cars can afford cars you've built your infrastructure so even that is starting to peter out so that's where i i go to if you if you start thinking about sort of systemic inequities in the economy in the 1920s there's there is definitely prosperity how widely it's shared um we find out by the end of the decade is not um as broad as as we sometimes assume and then if you look you know at the everybody can be rich piece that also suggests a, a recognition of that that if we don't get more people kind of invest investing as opposed to saving we we we're, we're starting to you know we're going to bifurcate even more who has money to spend and you know people will only spend so much money so i think that there are um there are varied experiences and of course, fast forward to the Great Depression, of course, we see that in high relief. But those 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 disparities existed in the 1920s as, as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would sort of start by going back. Jennifer mentioned a little bit how bad 1918-1919 was in America. Uh, in some ways, 1919 is one of the worst years in the country. Uh, so not only did you have the end of the war, which... Obviously, a lot of Americans are disillusioned with, but you had one of the worst years for um, labor strikes in the country. You know, you had the city of Seattle being shut down for something like seven days on a general strike. You had anarchist bombings or bombs being sent to prominent people, one of them exploding at the attorney general's house. This is the kind of the first red scare. You had race riots uh, attacks against African Americans in, in cities. And you had the influenza, the the um the the flu outbreak in you know, the Spanish flu, as they called it at the time, that killed, I think around 600,000 Americans. And I think the 20s in some ways is also a, a liberation from all of that, a feeling that you know Americans were going to put put behind the war, put behind some of this terrible stuff. Um, it's a kind of a broader feeling of optimism in the society. The second thing I would say about the 20s is talking about consumer goods, right? The uh, and for this I didn't, we didn't include it, but mid, the Lynn's Middletown is a great example if you want to look at this kind of looking at sociological look at an average American town in the Midwest, um, which shows the impact of consumer goods, the increasing access again jennifer 's right we, it doesn 't mean everyone had a washing machine or everyone had a radio. There were still significant parts of the of the, of the population that were lagging. but you had far more uh, automobiles, radios, lots of consumer goods that were becoming available and were changing it wasn 't just that they were people were buying things, but this changed behavior uh, everyday behavior and the lens go into that. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the great examples I'd like to use, especially with students, is, you know, the impact of the automobile and what that did for uh, gender relations, for young men and young women, and for dating habits. Um, so you also have some unsettling social changes or cultural changes that are going on. The third thing I would say, the last thing I would say during the 20s is also remember this is a period of urbanization where Americans are, uh, America is becoming more urban, more people are going to the cities. You've just had a massive wave of immigration, many, not all of those immigrants settling in in cities, so cities are growing, um, and this is also helping to fuel uh, some of that economy, Um, not the farm economy, but in terms of the urban economy, uh, both in terms of a workforce as well as consumers. So in terms of the 20s, those are the um, those are a few of the factors I would sort of include in this.
2: That's really great. Uh, You know, Vincent, you mentioned the 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 rise of the automobile and Jennifer, you mentioned this, this fascinating piece. One of the documents that we read for today was uh, this piece on Henry Ford's five day week uh, from 1922. Um, Just looking at this document very briefly, I was I was struck by uh, the second paragraph. Uh, with remarks from the New York Herald, uh, commenting on on Ford's mm-hmm. right, eight-hour eight uh, work day, 40-hour work week. Uh, quote, the Ford plan is joyous news to all who like to think of bringing work down to the irreducible minimum. Later, we shall have a 30-hour week, then a 20-hour week. Perfectly fascinating. So this this attitude in the early 1920s that things are only going to get better from here. I'm, I'm wondering if... If either or both of you could could comment more on on this document and specifically how did Americans like like Henry Ford and others contribute to the the rise of the the Roaring Twenties?
0: Well, I just want to. I'm not going to go first every single time to every question, but I would just want to jump in on this one because I think this this fits this jumps off really nicely off of you know Vincent's kind of you know more com- um, complete description of what happened in 1919, because, you know, what's really interesting in that context about this in 1922, and this was Ford's plan all along, was that it's kind of a vision where you can improve the lot of the worker and and, and, and continue to maintain or perhaps increase productivity without messy labor confrontations, that this is, you know, the, the enlightened industrialist um, you know, figuring out how to manufacture more efficiently uh, a car that consumers can buy, um, you know, average people can buy through installment plans, and workers will enjoy working for him because, you know, in the first iteration of his reforms, he he um, uh, uh, revamps his factories, he makes them cleaner, healthier, you know, sort of less backbreaking work, you know, the assembly line is sort of mind-numbing, but it, it, it also has a sense to to reduce uh, injuries in the factory. And now here you have, let's deal with the fatigue issue. And let's have when you're at work, you're at work, when you're at play, you're at play. And let's show that you know you're, these wages, these high wages that I'm paying, you're going to have more time to enjoy them and more time to enjoy the, uh, to have leisure time. You know, again, as Vincent was suggesting, that now with with an automobile, you know, you want to have, you want to take trips, you want to go out for Sunday drives, you know, you want to live your life differently. Now you're going to be able to have the time to do that, and and is he going to lead the way to force other industries to kind of, kind of go along? And the magic of it all is that, um, you as an enlightened employer bestow this on your workers; they gratefully take it, and there's no conflict. So it's an interesting, um way to kind of think about solving some thorny labor issues that of course the country has just been experiencing. And you don't do it with um, collective bargaining, you know, you don't do it with strikes, you don't do it with all those things that, that, um, that have not just been true in 1919, but of course, were true, you know, through the whole progressive era. So it's a, it's interesting, and just thinking about the document in terms of what we just said. I think that there is a sense also of imagining a future where leisure kind of dominates the life of the majority of Americans and, and the sense that working less um, doesn't have to be seen as um, a a, a devaluing of the moral character of the nation, because the other thing that we see in these documents is a kind of, oh, I think which we still have, you know, a kind of equation of. Equating of hard work, discipline, savings with with more a morally upright character, and, and you know the, the 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 idea here that the worker will do good things with this free time, and in, that was not always the the case in terms of what people um what people were were expecting. So. So yeah, so it's, it is, it is interesting that projection of, you know, we will work less and less, I think in our own lives, we probably would love to see that. I mean, since technology has kind of moved us in a completely, here we are on a Saturday morning working, <laughs> I think we, we've seen that it can, can definitely go the other way, Um but uh, but it's an interesting uh, it, it, interesting that it's here. I'll just say one last thing. I think that the other thing that's in this document is is a is he's also addressing an, un, an unemployment issue. You know, we have unemployment in Detroit, and one way, and we do see European nations following this. I think more these days than we do. But one way to employ more people is to reduce the work week. And then that creates more more work opportunities for greater numbers of people. And that will be something that is introduced in the Depression as well. The idea of, you know, reduce your work week so more people can have jobs. And so in the 1920s, again, coming out of a recession, they are concerned about that, that maybe we have short-term prosperity right now, but is it going to last or is it going to, you know, is it going to go a dip again? And how can we kind of, you know, sustain a, a more steady trajectory?
1: Yeah, I was just going to say something about unemployment. I think that's that's exactly right. That's what they're trying to almost spread the wealth in some ways, right? Yeah. If, if we can get workers to work a little bit less and we can get more workers then to do less, not less work, but work fewer hours, we can employ more people and therefore get fewer people who are unemployed. Uh, I like the idea that you were saying this, kind of the the moralism here, both in the Raskob and in Ford, right, because Raskob is talking to jump ahead maybe a little bit, but the idea of debt, right, debt Mm -hmm. used to be immoral, but Raskob is saying not necessarily, right, you can use debt responsibly and for healthy economic purposes and also for personal purposes, right, there's good debt and there's bad debt, debt's not necessarily evil, and the same thing here. Leisure is not—it's a changing idea, and I, and I think a lot of the 20s is also about changing cultural norms and cultural values, where we start to see Victorian-era morality—to to use a—to to, to put a lot into one little phrase—from uh, the late 19th, early 20th century, we see some of that fraying. And in that, in this sense, you see here both in terms of meaning leisure—that leisure can be good. Leisure is also good because what do you do when you're at leisure? Oftentimes, you spend money, right? When you travel, you are spending money. Uh, When you go and travel, you're buying cars, you're using uh, fuel and new tires, all that stuff. So leisure can be good and useful uh, in the same way as Raskov is saying that debt can be. Um, And there is a kind of a moral issue that involved in the question that you have I I think in many ways, the argument that the roaring 20s creates the depression is the flip side of that argument. Um, You kind of see it in Frederick Lewis Allen's Only Yesterday. It's a very popular history of the 20s, which is that the depression is the price that America paid for uh, being crazy in the 20s, right? Letting go, letting loose. uh, And this is the price that one pays, uh, that there was something kind of also morally off about the 1920s. Selfishness, greed, you know, that's what we say today. Uh, but there that's that's also part of the argument. So we we have this boom time and then we have to pay for it. It's it's kind of a puritanical way of viewing viewing history. And I think some people at the time did view that, right? That the depression is the price America paid for, you know spending more money focusing more on leisure and spend spending and all the other cultural things that were going on and the cultural changes so um that's that's an interesting part and that's an interesting connection between Raskob and and ford right that they're also not just talking about the economics but they're talking about changing norms cultural norms
0: and i think i would also uh, interject prohibition into this conversation because if you look at the um you know, the the pro the pro um prohibition <laughs> folks. I mean, they're taking a lot of credit for, it, for the prosperity in the 1920s. And they, you know, there's a great debate that takes place in 1925 um, between forces who are, you know, ab- advocating, well, are defending prohibition and and those who are are arguing that it's it's you know a huge mistake. And of course those defending it say, well look at look at how look at how great the economy's doing because you know, all these drunk workers who would show up to work on Monday, you know, Blue Monday, and they didn't want to do anything. And, and then they'd be getting into accidents and they'd be drinking at lunchtime. And, you know, now they're, you know, nose to the grindstone. And then when they go home, they, they're they not beating their wives anymore. And they're not sleeping with prostitutes. They're not gambling, you know, no, they're doing healthy, wholesome family activities. So family life is prospering and there's fewer people in jail. So that's reducing the amount of money that we have to spend, you know, on, 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 um on, uh, on on jailing people and or imprisoning people and so it it, it's it's uh it's they're really linking the prosperity of the 20s and again it's a it's a different it's a different kind of moral argument um than allen's which is to say that the whole country's moral character has been uplifted by not drinking and so now we can trust workers with this free time and we can trust them with higher wages because they don't have the capacity to do bad things with, with that. Cause that, you know, there's this paternalism that, you know, runs rampant through this as well. And Ford is a great, is very paternalistic with how he treats his workers. So I think that that, that is a really, um, it's a, it's in the air in the conversation in the 1920s. And of course, they've got some explaining to do when suddenly we have the depression and it's like, well, wait a minute, what happened to all those great savings? But if you look at you know the the arguments in favor of the 21st Amendment, a lot of it is that well, you know, selling booze is going to generate revenue because it's going to be new jobs in breweries and we can tax it and it's going to it it's actually an income generator and that becomes one of the arguments in favor course and there are other ways of, of, of a repealing prohibition. So, so even just the moral conversation around alcohol um, is linked to this idea of worker productivity and prosperity in both the 1920 well before but certainly in the 1920s and in the 1930s. So, uh, so what I think what we're saying is um, we needed like 16 documents for this conversation to like fully fully explore all the nuances of this question.
1: Take the course, oh. The Rise of Modern America.
2: There you go. <laughs> yes.
1: That's right. Or, or
2: check out our core document volume by, by John Moser, uh, The Great Depression and the New Deal, uh, which I know a couple of our documents came from, came from this volume for our conversation yes. today. Um, yes. Wow, really, really fascinating, fascinating stuff here. Uh, you both mentioned this other piece that we read, uh, the Raskob piece, uh, Everybody Ought to be Rich. Um, this is uh, one case where the date is really important for when this this uh, this document comes out, August of 1929. Um, and John Raskop, wow, what what an interesting guy! What what can you tell us about about uh, about Raskop? It was a real rags to riches story, right? And and yet some of his advice uh, turned out to be spectacularly ill timed. Correct. Tell us tell us something more about that. I I had not I had not known that about this piece before I read it for our our webinar today.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, is a fascinating guy in in the book I'm writing. He makes makes an appearance in a couple of chapters, like you said, rags to riches. He grows up upstate New York, um, I think, in a town that was that had boomed because of the Erie Canal. he's one of these kind of small town boys who had uh, who's just incredibly smart um, and had a way with figures and numbers and he becomes a um, kind of a a fiscal financial whiz and he works for the DuPonts and that's he gets to start really start with the DuPonts and then um, convinces them to invest in GM and then goes on to run GM. Uh, He's also uh, a very devout Catholic. He has 11 children and he spends a, and this is this is what I'm writing about. He spends a lot of um, money supporting the Catholic Church, um, so there's that aspect of it as well, which gets into another issue, which is probably somewhat beyond this, but about kind of moral responsibility of capitalism, right? What's what's the responsibility of capitalists who are Christian? And uh, I, in some ways, I think Raskob gets a bum rap, right? Mm-hmm. The, the the very um, the, the surface way to interpret this is, as you said, everyone, the head, remember this is an interview, so when we think about a primary document, this is an interview that he does for a magazine, um, and the headline is Everyone Ought to be Rich, which is taken out of something that he said in the, uh, in the interview, and Yes, he had incredibly bad luck that this comes out a few months before the stock market crash. He is investing well into October of 1929, um, and he's a believer. He's a firm believer in in this kind of ca- capitalism, investment capitalism, and how it can be democratized in some ways. He's also he's really hurt by the depression. Uh, that's another thing. Uh, he's not completely wiped out. He's not in poverty, um, but I don't think he ever completely recovers. From it. Uh, he ends up being the guy, I don't know if he owned it or ran um, the Empire State Building. And he hires, he's he is the campaign manager in 1928 for Al Smith, the Democratic, again, the two two Catholics. He was a campaign manager uh, and then ended up, ends up hiring Al Smith to sort of be the figurehead for the Empire State project. But he never um, you know he he never really regains his public stature after the Great Depression or his full bank account, so to speak he He really takes a hit. I think reading this in many ways, if you take away the date, I mean, what he's saying is very prescient, and it kind of foreshadows what we see today, what we see in terms of Americans saving, putting part of their um, putting part of their income salary into investment. Uh, vehicles, in order to not just put your money in a savings account and get two percent, but invest your money in the stock market and make more money, and then be able to retire on it. He's actually he's sort of predicting our IRA, Roth IRA, four hundred one k economy, um, and I think that's important. He's also in, in he's also talking about mutual funds, right? How to band together? Um, you know, how does an individual invest money? it's it's in the 20s it's still sort of difficult there's no Charles Schwab there's no Vanguard there's none of that but you know he's talking about experiments to get in this case executives you know dozens of executives in a company to sort of form together band together and invest money Um, so yeah I mean I think he's very very prescient in that sense it's just unfortunate that it came out when it did Um, but he's not the guy he's not P.T. Barnum, this isn't a Barnum-esque, and I think sometimes when people um, write about Raskob, they're they're, doing, they're they're making him as a Barnum-esque character. Everyone can be rich, come on, you know, and then look at this fool, you know, three months later, the stock market falls apart. His argument is much more complex, and I think uh, much more defensible on the very long term uh, in terms of how to get individuals, average Americans, invested in this capitalist economy, um, it doesn't happen for many many decades to come, but I think when reading this, I'm like, yeah, you know, he is he's sort of foreshadowing what we're going to see in the late 20th century. Now, even that is problematic today. Not everyone uh, has actually you know, invests in a 401k or an IRA. Um, there's still many many people who are kind of left out of that um, that form of investing. But there's still say, these these investment vehicles make up a, an important part, not only of you know, middle class, upper middle class Americans, investment portfolios and retirement incomes, but it's also hugely important for the capitalist economy in terms of investment.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I have a lot more to say, um, you know, to add to that, but except maybe to, I totally agree. I mean, I think Raskov gets a raw deal. I mean, I think that he, he doesn't have a crystal ball. He doesn't, No, he does say in the piece, you know, he's, he's not advocating speculating. He's not advocating buying on margin. He's not, he's not looking, he's not, he's, it's the opposite of kind of the quick get rich, get rich quick schemes that you see a lot of people sort of, you know, speculating in, in the, in the twenties. He's, he's kind of, positing, you know, see investing as a disciplined activity that you engage in through the course of your life. And you're, you're sort of prudently, um, you know, investing your money in vehicles that will pay off, you know, many years down the road, but you have to sort of be patient. And so there's, there is a kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, moral, uh, aspects to what he, there's morality, you know, in terms of what he's preaching. I think that what's also interesting here is that he, it's, it's, it's investing in yourself and your future, but it's also investing in the nation. And it's a way to like all these, all these pieces, keep the nation prosperous and keep, keep, you know, in this sense, use your money to invest in the capitalist enterprises of the United States so that they have the capital and credit they need to continue to innovate, to continue to grow, to continue to progress. And it is almost framed as like a responsibility that you have, that if you, you are undue, and so you're really flipping the, the script, right? so usually it's like, you're the morally upright character, if you save your pennies, you know, and you're not a spendthrift and you're, you're really careful and conscious um, about how you use your money. And here he's sort of like, well, if you put your money in a sock under the bed, like you're kind of selfish, because you're depriving the nation of the ability to use your money to create more jobs to create more industry to continue you know, to be more competitive with international companies. And so it's, it's a different notion of what is the proper use for your money for yourself but also for the society in which you live and i think what's what's what makes this document interesting is that idea that everybody uh has a a responsibility and 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 a and an ability to benefit from a capitalist economy and because the, the other thing that's going to happen, of course, with the stock market crash and, and you know, the first few years of the Great Depression with skyrocketing unemployment and, you know, just people on the streets is a questioning about capitalism. Ha- is capitalism dead? Like, is it the wrong system for the 20th century? And there will be alternative alternative voices out there, right, talking about other forms of government, other forms of economic um um enterprise and and so this is a piece that also expresses tremendous faith in capitalism and that cap that faith is also about to be shaken um and you know we go through this all the time I mean you know last year if you're in the stock market you're like yeah this is amazing (laughs) and this year nobody wants to look at their 401k plans because you're like I have to work for the rest of my life like I'm never going to be able to retire (laughs) because we've all just seen you know like you know, 11, 15% drops in, in portfolios and that shakes your faith <laughs> that you did the right decision in investing. So, you know, this is, I, I think it's, he's, he's, it, it is precedent in the idea of mutual funds and also in the, you can be riding high and then kicking yourself um, for either lost opportunities or maybe, you know, did I make the right choice to, to put so much in? So it's a, I I do feel like this one definitely speaks to us today in a lot of ways, no matter what, no matter when you read it, it always, it always has feels like it has something to say to you.
1: Yeah. He's, he is, he's flipping the script in a lot of ways. Whereas the, you know, the, the work, the worker who puts money away in a sock in a drawer was often the, you know, morally upright person. That was the symbol of America and the speculator was the evil person, right? It's the people who had been riding the stock market for decades and 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 toying with the stock market to their advantage, hurting others. And he's flipping the script and saying, no, actually the person, as you said, who's putting the money away is being selfish because that money's not going into the economy. And the person who is investing wisely, prudently um, is actually not just helping themselves, but helping the economy. And yeah, but the faith in the stock market is gonna take, Decades, right? Decades to come back. I think uh, we're all hoping that our faith will come back in a year or two, <laughs> right? But you know, you really won't see broad scale invested yeah. in the stock market until the late twentieth century in Europe, and maybe the eighties, uh, where you're going to see that. Um, it's a it's a kind of a vaguely democratic. It's a much more democratic vision, also, um, where you know it's an. The quote is also you know, everyone ought to be rich. The, the the quote if you actually look at where he says everyone ought to be rich it's there's a qualifier which says everyone ought to be rich but it is out of the question to make people rich in spite of themselves right so that's it's it's interesting you know, he's qualifying that that they you know it's it's something that people actually have to do and and you know you can't force them but they have to be kind of shown this um and they, and that's also an older idea, but he's just kind of channeling that older idea of savings into a different, a different vehicle. It's just, you know, the timing of it was hugely, hugely um, poor, so to speak. But as I say, he, he was doing, uh, you know, big investments up to, you know, in October of 1929, he believed, he truly believed uh, because he himself was, and there were lots of people in the early 20th century who, um uh, now, I don't want to say Horatio Alger, but, you know, this idea that, you know, I think not just that he, you know, I can make it, therefore you can make it. That's not what he's saying. That's uh, sort of the more, he, but he does believe that the opportunities that he had could be democratized even to people who were industrial workers, right? I mean, he was not an industrial worker. He came another way, but even people who were industrial workers could, uh, in certain circumstances, uh, could be able to retire. Like, again, he's talking about retirement here. He has not use the word retirement, I don't think, but that's what he's talking about. He's saying you can make enough money that you can then live off what you've invested, a percentage of what you've invested. And the idea of retirement is is almost non-existent in the 1920s for the for you know 90 plus percent of Americans.
0: Yeah, I think it is, it is interesting how, of course, this has been a pre-Social Security and, and, I mean, while some unions had negotiated pension plans for their workers, that was still a fraction of the American population. And he does kind of, you know, intimate in there that, you know, just saving your money, like, you know, even in a savings account or, you know, whether it's in your bed, that you will, you will be poor when you're old. And and that of course you know was a reality even in the Roaring Twenties that for most industrial workers if you stopped working you were poor you know your your standard of living went you know declined dramatically, and um, and he's sort of recognizing that and speaking to here's a way that you can avoid that fate for yourself and it's not a a, a solution that looks to a government pension plan which of course we're going to see several proposals for that you know in the 1920s but it shows that again this is a this is a concern and it's a question in the air for for many average americans that things might be good for you right now while you're at work but you're one accident you know you're you're 3 decades away from you know your lifestyle declining precipitously and 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 so that's another drain on um this idea of the roaring 20s, again, and go back to what I said at the very beginning, like roaring for who, like, for whom, like, who's, who's benefiting here, and you have pockets of prosperity, but a lot of pockets where people are just as impoverished as they were before, sometimes worse off, and, and that, that it's you know, in a, in a total national economy, that starts mattering over time. Um, I think the other thing that's interesting about Razkov is that, a lot of what he's messaging, people have heard this before, but they heard it in 1917 and 1918 when they were being encouraged to buy war bonds, and you know, people who have studied this this um, phenomenon of you know millions of Americans uh, in, in buying these investment in, uh, instruments for the first time that it was really teaching people how to save differently. I mean, there had certainly been you know neighborhood banks or or credit unions, or things of that sort, where people could invest their money, but this was the first way time in which you know there was a national appeal to uh, invest your money in a, you know a national endeavor, and in this case you know to help the, helping the country finance the war. It was a really expensive way to finance the war, but it was a way to sort of you know have people actively demonstrate their um their support. So there was a, you know, a a PR sort of morale part of it. But the other thing that it was doing is it was teaching people how to invest and giving them secure, you know, a sense of security with investing. And if you look at the publicity around um, war bond purchases, there's one part of it, which is, you know, do your bit, do the country, save soldiers overseas. But there's another part of Earn 4% interest, you know, secure your future, use this for your retirement fund, you know, all of these things. And so there's a way in which bonds are being uh, popularized as these these safe investment interests that, that you can use. To both help the government but also secure your future. And if you look at the justin compensation certificates, I saw we had a question here about the bonus march that were given to World War I veterans in 1924. These were 20-year bonds, and they were not just given that money outright. They were given 20-year bonds that, um, with the idea that these this would safeguard these veterans in the future. So if they died, their their family, you know, their dependents could could cash it. Um, But this would be essentially a retirement fund for them. And so when it came due, you know, in in 1944, they would would be older. And so this would kind of ease their retirement, they could borrow against it. I mean, there were all sorts of ways that it was seen as um, a way to, again, kind of protect workers from themselves. We don't just want to hand these guys a check for, you know, $1,500, who knows what they would do with it. But but it 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 is a way of educating people about the benefits of investing, and so I just bring that up because I mean he's not obviously mentioning that, but a lot but he's building on that conversation in 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 society and and now he's He's kind of arguing against bonds in this. he's saying, yo, yeah, well, bonds seem safe, but actually you're limiting yourself, and you don't need to do that because there's already been this wide acceptance by that point that government bonds okay that that was a sort of secure you know was perceived anyway as a secure investment, even though speculators ended up buying up most of them for people but anyway, I just wanted to." Besides, you know, we always want to talk about World War One, but besides that, I think it is actually part of that story of how you start seeing investing move from just being the purview of very limited number of Americans to a more a generalized practice about, um, you know, in terms of what people do with their money.
2: Yeah, Cobb, R- certainly a, a fascinating guy. whereas um, as Jennifer mentioned, that we had a question come in about how did the government's response to the Bonus Army reflect the government's attitude towards the Depression. You already answered that, but I want to encourage uh, the rest of the members out there in our audience, please keep those questions coming uh, into the Q&A chat box. Uh, we'll try to get to as many of those as we can. I see we have another one about how the Great Depression ended. We'll get to that one uh, later in the program. But before we can talk about how it ended, we need to talk about how it started. And, and both of you have mentioned uh, the stock market crash in the fall of, of 1929. Um, and we start we opened our program. I think both of you sort of were in agreement that there is this overemphasis on well, the stock market crashed, and then you get the great Depression right after it so the 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 great De- the great Depression was caused by the stock market. I wonder if we could maybe flesh that thesis out a little bit more take us back to that time in the fall of of nineteen twenty nine What happened exactly? why did it happen? Uh, finally, help us understand the extent to which right uh the the stock market crash was a contributing factor to the great depression and the extent to which it was not that that there were other elements at play i just want to give you both an opportunity to maybe say more about uh that opening statement that i think you both agreed on at the at the top of the program that the stock market that's not the end of the story
1: yeah the um in i think it was the bernstein essay there's a quote from uh John Kenneth Galbraith, the economist. He says the economy impacts the stock market, but the causality doesn't run the other way. The stock market doesn't impact the economy directly. It does not. And I think there's truth to that. I mean, We've had the three biggest stock market crashes would be um, 1929, 1986, I think that was 86, and then um, the more recent one, 2008, 2009. Now, Two of those led to serious recessions slash depressions, but one of them didn't. 86 did not lead to a, 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 a depression or a recession. We we end up having a recession in 1990, which is minuscule, but it's not directly related. Um, in all of those, you can see that what happens in the stock market is about things that predate it. The 2008, I think we know uh, a lot of that was, going, was about what was going on in real estate, uh, also with energy prices. Uh, you know, a capitalist economy is cyclical. I think that's, we sort of understand that it has cycles, it has cycles of boom and bust of growth, and then retrenchment. And um, so it's sort of natural to see periods of, of growth or overextension, business overextends, people overextend, and then there's a pullback. And that that follows throughout, although this is jumping ahead a little bit, but it's it's interesting if you look at Recessions, depressions after the Great Depression, right? The the booms get get smaller, so the uh, in terms of the growth, but the downside also gets smaller. Our our recessions are lighter generally. Uh, you don't see the deep recessions that you see in the Great Depression and before. I mean, the previous depression was eighteen ninety three, and that lasts for depends how you define it four, five, six years. Um, so you don't see that as much. Uh, yeah, 1929 is, um, it, there's weakness in, in the stock market before this, but you have people investing. There's this kind of um, over-enthusiasm, which we get. What, what did Greenspan call it again a few years ago in the stock market? Um, one term was frothiness. Oh, irrational exuberance, Right. Irrational exuberance. People, when you see the, the the stock market go up, you want to jump in, uh, when, of course, the best time to jump in is when the stock market is low, But, uh, but people... There's so somewhat irrational. People want to jump in as it's going up. The other thing is that people are also borrowing. They're borrowing money on margin. This is the uh, problematic thing. And, and Raskop is involved in margin buying as well. And some of his clients are doing margin buying as well. Uh, and what this means is that when the price of stocks decline, those margins get called and you all of a sudden owe what you you owe what you borrowed. Uh, and that puts a lot of people out. Uh, there's also an apocryphal story. <laughs> Uh, about the shoe shine boy, and I think it's generally told by a stockbroker or someone who says that he knew that it was time to get out of the market when his shoeshine boy was giving him investing advice, right? So this idea that there's just people that you know the market is going, you know, you want to get rich, there's, and the market crashes. Now, why did the market crash? Well, there had been an economic growth, expansion and throughout the 20s. But there are also as Jennifer said there are some underlying weaknesses in the economy that begin to, to show and then the stock market crash begins to kind of exacerbate that. But I think that the, you know, the elementary school or the the old, you know, school yard, um, explanation that the stock market crash caused the Great Depression, which is something, I mean, I heard as a kid, um, is vast oversimplification. The stock market, both the growth and the the crash is part of much larger and deeper systemic issues that are going on. Uh, We can also talk uh, before the end about sort of why the depression lasts long, how the depression ends. I think that's one of the questions out there. Um, But yeah, that's a start
0: yeah I just to build on that, I think that that's right. There's different periodization in in terms of understanding this one is sort of what causes the the first crisis, and then the second of course is why did it last so long and even in the the period we call the great Depression, there's ebbs and flows there's sort of moments where there's sort of recovery, and then you know in nineteen thirty seven the sort of you know Roosevelt recession when you know they start taking uh social security payments out of people's paychecks and and um And, um, you know, so there's, there's, there, even the depression itself does not have just sort of, you know, one continuous uh, um, note, but I think that the, um, the question about, you know, we've been talking about these transformations in the American economy towards a more consumer focus. So if you are, you know, you're moving away from sort of heavy infrastructure um, development, um, you know. Steel, coal—you uh, know these industries as being the backbone of your of your economic engine—and you're moving more towards consumer goods, cars, you know, you know sewing machines, washing machines, whatever it is, as that being you know, you're sort of moving into that type of economy. The purchasing power of of the average American starts mattering a lot more. I mean, it didn't matter that much when you're building the railroads. It doesn't really matter that much if workers can afford to buy. Um, you know uh, I don't know a horse or a cart or something I mean that's not that's not the, the thing that's going to really generate wealth in your economy, but now suddenly it does matter so if you have half the population um you know, farmers who are buying say they're investing in trucks and tractors and, and mechanization, but that in some ways exacerbates the problems in the farm economy because you can produce more with with fewer workers, you go into debt to purchase those instruments and then of course, you know, in the early 30s, we have an, uh, an unprecedented ecological crisis and part man made because of, you know, of, of unsustainable farming practices and so, you know, you have, you have this this sort of um, confluence of, of factors that, that creates different problems in different parts of the country. So, you know, you have a problem. I mean, this is one of the great paradoxes of the Great Depression. I mean, you have people starving in a nation of plenty. The farmer's mm-hmm. problem is they're producing too much food. And of course, you've got people starving in the cities. So this is a problem of how, you know, of, of who has purchasing power, of of of, of, you know, of getting equilibrium between these these two part these two you know uh, um, engines of economic progress and you know this is what frustrates people so much I mean when you you know the first one of the first New Deal programs where you're having you're just you know you're slaughtering hogs and your your farmers are protesting and dumping out milk and you you like you know people standing in in, in um, soup line soup kitchen lines in the cities it, it you know you can't really wrap your mind around this. Um, and I think we've, we struggle with that today. I mean, we're an incredibly wealthy nation and yet, you know, we have huge problems of homelessness and we have people living in poverty and we think, well, how can this be? So a lot of this is about distribution of wealth. And I think that this is a problem or a, a recognition that we see in the documents in the 1920s, that, that a lot of these ideas that people have is about, you know, whether it's Ford reduce the number of hours people work per week so more people can have jobs or RASCOB, you know more people should be investing in, in their futures the stock market there is this sense that distribution of wealth is matters in a, in a capitalist economy and if you don't have purchasing power in the hands of um, average people with the way this economy is transforming you're not going to you know progress prosperity is not going to be sustainable so so I think there's that kind of macro level obviously we have other things in the documents point to um, some some misnomers um, in terms of of how you you address a financial turndown um do you raise the tariff do you try to balance the, the 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 federal budget um you know the these are these are tactics that are tried that completely backfire but at the time they're sort of orthodoxy i mean this is what you do and i think a lot of students are surprised to realize that FDR runs in 1932 on a balance the budget ticket like he's a fiscal conservative like he goes in the first thing he does is he cuts the federal budget (laughs) I mean he turns around pretty fast but he does not go in as a you know with Keynesian ideas of like you know deficit spending it's the opposite so um so I think and even Hoover who you know the Reconstruction Finance Corporation gets a bum rap but it is but but first of all FDR continues it, and second of all, it is a recognition that if financial institutions in in cities and towns fail, the whole economy collapses that you you know you need to have your mortgage companies, your savings and loans your your banks remain solvent, otherwise everybody loses their money so it's it's but the but it's it's that trickle down nature of course that 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 people can't can't um can't get their minds around and Hoover is not a very good communicator in terms of really helping people understand how this how his approach is going to work and this is where I, I, d- I did want to circle back to the question on the bonus march because I think that one of the problems with the bonus march when you think well how did this demonstrate you know the government's response to the depression is that you Jennifer can, sorry just to interrupt yeah, first, sorry. can
2: you can you tell us what the bonus march was what exactly that is
0: Sure. So the bonus march, So I had mentioned earlier about this adjusted compensation certificate that World War I veterans had received in 1924. So, you know, when the Great Depression hits, and, you know, starting around 1930, 1931, um, you have group veterans, the American Legion, begin asking for immediate compensation. So these certificates were not due until 1944, but veterans asked that the government pays the face value of them right away. So rather than, you know, having them reach full maturity, they're like, you know, give us our $1,500 now. So the bonus march is basically a, a mass protest movement, um, you know, upwards of 40,000 veterans, at, you know, in and out because it's a, it's a, it goes on for about two and a half months um, go in and, um, you know, stage a mass protest essentially to, they, they camp out in Washington, DC, um, and eventually are, uh, violently expelled by the army. And, and that leads to, yeah, a lot of, of, um, you know, bad PR for, for Hoover and, um, and um, yeah so that's so so it's it's it it happens in the summer of 1932 it's leading into the presidential election and I mean I doubt that Hoover was going to win anyway I don't think it was the singular event that caused him to lose the election but what it did really it highlighted a few things one is that you saw as these veteran groups were coming across the country and they were they sort of came from all different places, the states were very happy to provide them transportation through their states to the the state line and push them on to Washington, D.C. So we created this kind of um, visual event where, um, you know, the problems that the average person was facing as a result of the Great Depression were visualized for people. And the idea that what Hoover responded to them by never meeting with them, by calling them communists, a communist-inspired rebellion, and then driving them out with the army, it just seemed, it created this image of callousness on the part of the federal government to the, the suffering of the average citizen. And Roosevelt was just a better politician. He absolutely agreed with Hoover that the bonus should not be paid early. But when there was a second bonus march in 1933 when he was president, he sent his wife down to the camps, you know, they had a nice chat, they gave them train tickets to get them home, offered them positions in the CCC, they created special veterans, you know, uh, groups just for, uh, um, for for bonus marchers to, to go into. And he, had, he wrapped the whole thing up in like 10 days. So he avoided a sort of public relations nightmare, even though he followed exactly the same fiscal policy. And then kind of fast forwarding, the bonus is eventually paid early in 1936 and i love this again i think this shows just what a great politician roosevelt is because rhetorically he was against it um he knew congress was going to override his veto so they they override it it gets paid the money gets paid out in 1936, just before the 1936 presidential election. So these veterans get this money. All this money comes pouring into the economy, gets spent. So everything looks like, hey, there's a kind of rise. Things look like they're sort of better. So he get any benefits from that, being able to claim that, you know, his policies are improving the economy um, and wins re-election. So I just think, wow, you know, he just knows how to do it. And Hoover, this was not up to the task in terms of being that kind of reassuring political leader that people could have confidence in um, even though a lot of his economic ideas um, were were either built on programs Hoover had instigated or, you know, mirrored his his philosophical notions um, uh, as much because in 1935, he stops direct relief because like Hoover, in terms of the Hoover speech we have, he believed, you know, that's going to undermine American character if people don't work for their money. All right. So anyway, that went into a lot of detail, but but I think that the bonus march is interesting because not just what happens in 1932, but even how it unfolds, it does kind of become a microcosm for how the federal government is, um, you know, both the Hoover administration and FDR administration are grappling with this problem of how to solve a complex systemic meltdown of the economy in a way that the average person feels that they're heard, their suffering is seen, and they are going to get some kind of immediate relief.
1: Uh, one just quick trivia about the bonus march. Uh, it's right. The, the images of it were were bad. It was a militaristic move. It was uh, the, the military move was was um, led by Douglas MacArthur and two of his, the, his two top aides there. I think it was Eisenhower and Patton the his two officers helping. So you have the, the military leadership of World War II there uh, taking out these, you know, a couple of, you know, 20,000 or so bonus marchers. Yes, the, the optics were not good. And and that is Roosevelt's, I think, great strength was his flexibility. Uh, we often say that the New Deal was not, he, he didn't come into office with a fully formed political policy program. And, there's an element of truth to that. There's a lot of improvisation that went went along. But if you look at that, um, the forgotten man speech, you actually do see the outlines of some of what he was doing in terms of farm policy. We you know, talk a lot about farm policy. So what you're going to see with the AAA in terms of trying to get up uh, prices for agriculture, how important that was. Uh, the tariff issue is the second one. The, and the third issue was housing and how important that was because, in terms of the collapse that comes about, it's a banking collapse as well. I don't think we mentioned the collapse of the American banking industry. You had some thousands of American banks just go under. And in the days before the, the FDIC, right, your your savings accounts weren't protected. So you would lose your money. There'd be runs on banks as people tried to take their money out before the bank went out of business. Uh, it was also incredibly hard to get a – the modern home mortgage didn't really exist, Uh, prior to the 1930s. So what happened is that with the collapse of the banks, you also had um, foreclosures, right? And you had lots of foreclosures on houses. It was very difficult to get any money to build houses or to borrow money to buy a house. So one of the things that the New Deal ends up doing is kind of recreating the um, the housing market and the housing finance system. So you get the homeowners loan corporation, and then you get the FHA and what the FHA ends up doing is government will under will, will will ensure mortgages made by private banks, right, so that private banks would go then go back out with the assurance that the money that they would provide for mortgages would be protected by the federal government. If there was a foreclosure, you have the creation of the mod, the amortized mortgage. Previously in the 20s, mortgages were not amortized. So they they were five through two, three, five-year mortgages. And at the end of that period, your house wasn't paid off. You'd have to get another loan to do that. Um, so this is all part, jumping ahead, I think, a little bit to the New Deal, right? This is all part of, of what's going on, excuse me, uh, in terms of the New Deal, trying to shore up some of the weaknesses that had existed in the coming 20s and were exacerbated by the fiscal financial collapse of the stock market, but especially of the banks and the credit and the credit system.
2: We've had a lot of questions coming in. And, and actually, just during the course of the conversation, both of you have, have answered some of these questions that have, have already popped up. There was one about the, the farm crisis that, uh, that that Jennifer talked about, another one about the bonus army. Um, and we're quickly running out of time here. We're only, we only got about 10 minutes left, if you can believe it. Time just flies. Um, I want to go back maybe so we can can say a little bit more about. Uh, Hoover and FDR and the two documents that we read uh, from from those two presidents, um, Hoover's um, the principles and ideals of the US government and FDR's the forgotten man Two speeches that you you both have mentioned. I've got a lot of questions about both of these documents, but I guess I'll start uh, with just with just two. Um, What did Hoover do to deal with the onset of the, the Great Depression right to go back to right sort of those. Uh, very quick surface level approaches to the topic where we've been told, maybe in, in, in school growing up, well, the stock market caused the Great Depression. I remember being taught, well, Hoover, right, approached uh, the role of government and its role in the economy with the principle of laissez-faire, hands off. And yet we see Hoover here explicitly saying, no, that's not what I'm doing. So how did, what did Hoover do about the Great Depression? And then secondly, what did FDR do different? What was – how did FDR's vision of the role of government compare to that of of Hoover?
1: Um, I'll I'll start just briefly maybe on the the second one. I I always – I see Hoover – Jennifer can uh, – she agrees. I see Hoover as kind of caught between progressive-era ideas – uh, and kind of more. No, he's he's never a laissez-faire guy. I think that's always a bad rap. But he does have kind of visions of an old, I don't want to say older American, but a more individualistic America, right? One that that sees a role for government, but sees a role that's somewhat limited and needs to be limited because too much government is could be not a good thing. And so I think he's caught between. Like he was a. You know, we we forget. Herbert Hoover was probably one of the most popular Americans from World War II down to the 20s, and he was known as a humanitarian, as a great humanitarian, um, for his help with with relief and famine relief and war relief. So he sort of—I I always see him as caught between the the Progressive Era ideas and maybe some of the older ideas that are skeptical of too much government, right? That, and Roosevelt has no such qualms, right? And, and in fact. It, It's, I don't want to call him an opportunist, it's not, and I don't think he's, it's not that he doesn't believe in things, but he really is someone who's just trying to make things work. He's trying to figure out what will work and has an amazing adaptability and flexibility, even with his own, within his own cabinet, with his own advisors. He has people who are of diametrically opposed ideas in terms of what to do, and he's constantly playing them off of each other and kind of picking from here and picking from there and I think that's something that Hoover did not have. Jennifer talked about Roosevelt's skills as a politician and Hoover's maybe core skills as a politician. I think that can't be emphasized enough, uh, which is that 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 Roosevelt had both a little more empathy. It's kind of interesting because he was a you know he was a a landed landed aristocrat from upstate New York, basically. Uh, But he was able to kind of show an empathy that Hoover, for all of his humanitarian, I mean, Hoover did far more humanitarian work in his life than Roosevelt ever did. Um, But he was not able to sort of communicate that, to show that, show that empathy that Roosevelt was. And secondly, Roosevelt had like an intellectual ideological flexibility. He was not going to be tied down. uh, So like Jennifer said, balanced budget, sure, we'll, we'll do balanced budget. Oh, but then, you know, six months later, we'll spend lots of money on this. We'll try this program um, that involves, um, you know, we'll, we'll do the NRA, which involves sort of a massive intrusion of, of government power and restructuring uh the economy and making, you know, centralizing power. Um, but we'll also, when it comes time to the housing market, we'll we're gonna empower private uh private business like banks and real estate construction companies to do that. Um he was there's a quote in one of the readings where he was never as um He was never as radical as his opponents thought he was, or that some of his supporters wanted him to be, right? He was always kind of balancing that out. He had people who wanted him to go much further, and he had people who thought that he was going too far, and he was constantly kind of dancing around that edge.
0: Yeah, and I think that um, one of the things that um, Roosevelt was able to do that Hoover was never able to do was that... Hoover didn't get credit for um, what he did successfully, and he got blamed for um, things that went wrong that were, you know, out of his control. And I think Roosevelt was like the flip side. Um, he got, you know, sort of Teflon. If things didn't go well, um, all, you know, all all other people in his administration, you know, uh, Congress would get blamed, and he was kind of he was kind of, you know, free and clear. Um, and um, and then obviously. Got tremendous credit for the programs that did work and when we think about you know who who has a bum rap in history I think Herbert Hoover is definitely one of those individuals because what we kind of fail to recognize is that if you if you look at it where he is in 1932 and by 1932 he has gone farther than any U.S. president up till that point had gone in terms of Developing, uh, you know, direct federal intervention in the economy through the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. The, he creates a farm board. He comes into office understanding the farm crisis and and you know has that proposal for the farm board ready in 1929 before the stock market crash. That's not a reactive policy. That's a policy that he comes in kind of looking down the the road and seeing that there has to be some kind of way. And what the Farm Board is really trying to do is what and is what the Agricultural Adjustment Act picks up on. Is to um, create farm, you know, lend money to farmers cooperatives so that they can actually store their grain and and not just be selling it at a low price when the market is flooded at harvest time, but then be able to kind of gain the profits themselves directly by releasing, um, you know, foodstuffs more uh, in a more steady way over the course of the year. But also, it, it can it, it's meant to help farmers uh, reduce the production of their of their crops and but not be fearful that they're going to lose money by doing so that if you can kind of stabilize prices that you know that in which they're making profits, they will voluntarily because he did have a great uh, idea of voluntarism voluntarily see that it makes more sense to grow less rather than to grow grow more, to try to make more money. But it's that kind of counterintuitive logic, like just with the stock market, like what you should do is throw your money into the stock market when it's declining. And, you know, it's really hard to do that. It's very hard for farmers to, when they see prices increasing, oh, you know what I should do? I should grow less because then I'll make even more money. Of course, you see prices increasing, so you wanna you want to get in on that. So that's where Roosevelt comes in and realizes, well, what you have to do is not just you have to pay people to not grow crops. I mean, you just got to pay them to, and fine them if they do, when they agree to, when they sign these agreements. So he, he, he gets rid of that kind of moral decision-making that Hoover emphasizes in, in the program that he does. But but what they're trying to accomplish is the same thing, and the reconstructed finance corporation continues that does not go away. The government continues to you know to to basically subsidize the banking industry and large corporations for a long time to to keep them solvent at the same time that he then does what Hoover won't do. He he introduces, you know, temporarily direct aid. He has direct work programs. We know all about these mortgage, you know, mortgage reforms. I mean, a whole host of things that go directly to the forgotten man, you know, to his speech that you're going to see today, these five programs that will directly impact you. Whereas Hoover's like, have faith in capitalism, have faith that once we stabilize things, you know, the structure when this, you know, he, Again, Hoover was an engineer by training. Once you stabilize the structure, it'll all start working well again. And if I give you too much, I'm going to reduce your initiative, I'm going to ruin the American character, and I'm going to destroy the fabric of this country. So, and, you know, what Hoover is worried about, FDR is worried about, and we're worried about who are the deserving poor in American society? Are you poor because of structural problems of a stock market crash of farm economy? Are you poor because you're lazy and you won't work and you had too many kids and you drink too much? You know, there's, we, we are not away from those conversations. And so implicit in all of this is the idea of how do you How do you help people in a moment of economic crisis without destroying the fabric of this country, not just its institutions, but its moral fiber and its value structure? And, you know, I think any, we constantly are dealing with that question and, and Hoover and Roosevelt are not that far apart in being concerned about it. It's just that, you know, I think their, their political abilities and and like Vincent pointed out, I mean. Roosevelt is is a little more pragmatic, and Hoover's principles serve him well for a long time. But then they get in his way. I mean, they get in his way. But nonetheless, he uh, Hoover um, FDR benefits from what Hoover has done, and and Hoover is definitely not responsible for the Great Depression. So since this whole thing is about what caused the Great Depression, i will just say. It's not because of Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover did not, we don't, we can't lay it at his doorstep.
2: (laughs) There you go. We're able to reach some conclusions here (laughs) after all. Yes. Wonderful. Well, we are we are if you can believe it, we are out of time. We didn't have a, a chance to get to this question about uh, right how the Great Depression ended. Uh, maybe we can do another webinar on uh, on that topic. Uh, but very quickly, just let's take you know ten seconds. If each one of you want to recommend a, a book or another primary document that you would encourage uh, any audience member out there who's interested in learning more about this topic, what should they read?
1: Um.
0: um
2: go
1: okay.
0: ahead, Betsy. Right. Oh, I was going to say, Eight. well, a book. Yeah, a book that I really like, um, and I've just got it up here so I remember get the full title here, is a book called Down and Out in the Great Depression, um, Letters from the Forgotten Man. And this is a compilation of letters from average citizens who wrote to Roosevelt or to Eleanor or to even, you know, some members of his cabinet. And, you know, what was interesting about FDR was how he used the radio and how he would encourage average Americans to write to him. Write to me. Tell me your problems. Tell me what you're thinking. And again, when you read these letters, it's from across the spectrum. I mean, his critics, conservatives, um, uh, very radical people, African-Americans, I mean, you have all different, different, um, uh, um, what do I say, experience was related in these letters. And a lot of these letters, people talk about what what their lives were like in the 1920s and what changed in the in the Depression, and for some people nothing changed. If you're a black sharecropper um, and you know the WPA is offering you some type of assistance, actually things are better have gotten better for you in some respects than what you were experiencing in the 1920s. You have people writing who are opposing Social Security. These people just wasted the good years in the 1920s. Why should we bail them out now? Um, and then you have you know, children writing to Eleanor Roosevelt. I need shoes. I need a coat. You know, my mom cries all the time. I mean, you you really get, I think, um, some insight into what people expected from the government and what they did, what they wanted the government to do, and what they didn't want the government to do. So we spent a lot of time today talking about kind of the upper strata. You know, Henry Ford, Raskob, Hoover, FDR, and their ideas about what would be good for the country and what would be good for workers. But what I like about this book is you, you hear the voices of people themselves and hear what they think and what they think they need and what they would like to see the government do or not
1: do. I'll just, I'll go in the opposite direction. Uh, and, and if you're looking for a broad mm-hmm. overview of this, I think the, probably the best book would be uh, David Kennedy's Freedom from Fear, part of the Oxford series. So if, you, if you're, you know, you just want what happened, you want to get a basic that's To me, that's one of the best uh, overviews of it. The other recommendation is something I mentioned earlier. If you want uh, a little more insight into the 1920s, take a look at um, Robert and Helen Lynn's middle, book Middletown, which is a sociological study of the changes in uh, middle America in the 1920s. It's still useful today for to understanding the changes, the economic cultural changes uh, that, that we see in the 1920s.
2: And I'll recommend, as I mentioned earlier, uh, in our core document collection, The Great Depression and the New Deal uh, by John Moser, a member of our uh, AU and MAG faculty. Uh, You can find uh, you can get a download a free PDF of this volume on our website, Teaching American History or tah.org. You can order a hard copy for yourself for around 10 bucks. Uh, Okay, so that brings us to the end of our program. Thanks to our panelists as well as to our participants uh, for some great questions this morning. As a reminder, within the next week, you will receive an email that will include links to today's readings, suggested further readings on today's topic, and a link to the archived webinar. We hope you will share this information with your colleagues as well as on social media. If you have enjoyed today's webinar, please consider taking an online graduate course in our MAG program. You can find more information about online course offerings, as well as many other resources for teachers at teachingamericanhistory.org. This is our fifth episode of American Controversies. The program will return next month on February 4th, 2023, when the discussion uh, will focus on the Progressive Era. Thanks again uh, for being with us this morning. Uh, We look forward to seeing you all next month. And to our panelists, Jennifer, Vincent, thank you both so much uh, for being here this morning and, and sharing your expertise on a very important, complex topic. It was great having you with us this morning.
1: Thanks very much. Enjoyed it.
2: Thank you. And thank you to everybody out there for watching. We'll see you next
1: month. Thanks again for listening to Teaching American History's webinar on the connections between the Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression. For more information on our webinars, in personal educator professional development programs, free document library, and graduate programs, please visit us at TAH.org.